you know what you were saying before about people pleasing it kind of i mean that's one of the things about sort of codependency which is this idea of as long as everyone else is okay i lose my sense of self in making sure that everyone else is, is kind of okay and that's a way of us controlling our feelings that we have about being out of control and being ourselves hello and welcome to the bossing it podcast this series will be exploring the real life stories of women on a mission to build big brands and fulfilled lives each guest will share the ups and downs of growing their business and get real about the challenges life has thrown their way on the road to success. Each episode will offer a fresh outlook on life and business and you'll also get to hear top tips from these amazing founders that will inspire you on your own mission of entrepreneurship. I'm your host Connie London Jefferson and today's episode is a little bit different and absolutely incredible. I'm chatting to Jackie Power, a therapist specialising in addiction. We wanted to talk to Jackie about a topic we know affects many founders in our community, and that's workaholism. In this episode, Jackie shares her fascinating insights about the root causes of addiction and how they can manifest in our working life, from burnout to people-pleasing. We also talk about how both the pandemic and the notion of hustle culture have fanned the flames of our work addiction over the last few years. When Jackie isn't helping clients work through addiction, she's writing and performing poetry, which is why she's become known as the Therapeutic Poet. She runs therapeutic writing workshops, has her own podcast, and in 2021, she wrote and performed her own show, Stop the World, I Want to Get Off, a feeling I think many of us could relate to last year. Creativity has been a real source of self-care for Jackie, and we discuss more about that in this episode. This conversation with Jackie blew me away and really made me rethink my approach to running my business and it might just do the same for you. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about these really interesting topics. Oh, pleasure. Delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So we're going to jump into talking, like I said, big topics around addiction and burnout and workaholism. But before we get started, could you tell us a little bit about you and your background and and how your sort of career has developed into this interesting space yeah i'd say i'm like on my third or fourth career at this stage (laughs) i um i started many years ago as a tesco graduate on their graduate training scheme and i worked in there for a few years and went into marketing and uh, was in tesco.com when it was the dot-com bubble in the late 90s and um, then I moved to Ireland and was club car brand manager for Tesco over there. Um, my, my other half is Irish, so I'd moved over there and um, got married and had um, a child and had moved to Ogilvy then, was an account director in Ogilvy. And I just went, I don't know why I'm doing this job anymore when, you know, I was, we didn't have family around and my son was, um, you know, I hardly, I hardly saw him and I just... Um, just decided that I was going to stay at home and and be with him and raise the kids Mm. for a bit. So I did that for a few years. And then when I was pregnant with my youngest, I decided to retrain in in addiction psychology, um, which I did, which took me about five years in between having babies and, you know, all sorts of stuff going on. Um, Yeah. And then I've been working in that field ever since. And my poetry really start I started writing when I was about 11 so that has always been like a constant throughout 
but now I'm getting to a space where I'm managing to kind of combine the two, which is really interesting. Which is it's wonderful. What was that decision like when you, you know, sort of been in this big corporate world, you were searching for maybe your passion or having a bit more of a fulfilled career. But what led you into addiction psychology? Because it's, it's quite a niche topic, but a really important one. Yeah, I'd always been really interested in psychology. I thought I wanted to be a psychiatrist when I was younger. I didn't realise that was sort of so medically sort of bias, if you like. Um, And so when I took the break, it was the opportunity to kind of go back to school and rethink what I wanted to do. And then, you know, my family's been touched by addiction like many families have. And so it just seemed like it was a good good fit. It was an area I was really interested in and um, found this course in in London uh, that was just looked at all of the different areas about addiction and, and the psychology of it. It was just such an interesting course that, yeah, I decided to take the plunge. And how your business now or your, your kind of practice, I suppose, do you work with people with lots of different addictions? Do you specialise in anything in particular? Well, I did my, I, so I specialised in um, my my research, if you like, was in social media addiction. Oh, wow. So I did that on, yeah, I did that on Facebook and I looked at um, attachment style. Like we all have our different attachment styles based on the way that we've been raised. And I looked at that and the way that people might use Facebook addictively. So yeah. um, <laughs> so I, because I was really interested in that because there's different ways you can use Facebook. And I was interested if we think about what addiction does for people, which is it's kind of a replacement for attachment and it's a way of medicating our feelings and things. So it can be like this false parent in a funny sort of way, the substance mm. or the behaviour. So I was interested in seeing well, what behaviours do people you know, and acting when they're on Facebook that, that's helping to regulate them in some way. But wow. I mean, it you know, I deal with all types of, of addiction. It's not just alcohol, drugs. It can be exercise, food, um, sex, gambling, work, you know, the whole the whole gamut, really. Yeah, I mean, I think social media addiction is something that is so pertinent now in the conversation, you know, around our mental health and especially young people. But I don't think that older generations are immune to it at all like I think it's it's a real problem for a society at the moment that I think on a wider scale we really need to look at yeah absolutely and I think one of the key things with any addiction is availability how available is the substance to you and if you think about that they call it the martini effect which is like any time any place anywhere you know now you can pick up your phone and you can be on social media you can be checking emails or you can be watching Netflix, like it's it's so readily available. And like with anything that I would work with when I'd be working with someone, it, the first thing is, well, how can I make that less available to me? You know, whether that's social media or whether it's, it's drink, it's identifying hurdles that just make that process to go straight to that to that thing sort of hard to do. Because what happens in addiction is it becomes quite automatic like this you know it's you know like when you're learning to drive a car and every little bit like feels like it's so you know you've got to really learn each bit and then before you know it everything is quite automatic it's the same it's the same with um with addiction you know the the, it is less hard work to just reach for that whatever it is than it is to um to try and regulate your emotions in a different way a hundred percent and I feel like the car analogy is really interesting because it's almost muscle memory you know we kind of get Mm. to know what to do and I think our phones be that social media or be it work emails I think like we do just all have this muscle memory of now okay like I've you know I've woken up I picked up my phone I'm clicking onto Instagram I'm scrolling and it's just so 
innate now it's like mm. we do it without even thinking like our subconscious is is just doing that so you're, yeah. you're right like and breaking that cycle is really difficult yeah it is and then also you're fighting against the likes of you know of um, instagram who have really looked into the psychology of how um what can turn people on to using it so that little mm. red dot that's underneath the heart is red for a reason you know and, and the likes are there for a reason and the scrolling it actually um, imitates you know the like the gambling the one-armed bandit thing wow it, it 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 it's similar to that and what we know is that um the reward kind of mechanisms in our brain are much more attuned to when that reward is not predictable yeah so so if you scroll and then a like appears and then you scroll again and it doesn't appear and then you scroll again and another like appears, that's much more of a hook into keeping on doing that than if you always knew you were going to get a like or you always knew you weren't going to get a like. Wow. So we have, you know, the way that our brain is created, like we have the prefrontal cortex, which is the impulse control part of the brain, which isn't developed in children, you know, certainly up to the age of 7, 12, that kind of comes later. Yeah. Um sort of through puberty and things so you've got this part of the brain which sort of helps you to control your impulse but those mechanisms that the likes of instagram are using aren't relating to that part of the brain they're relating to the part of the brain that's the emotional part of the brain Mm. which is much more instinctual and therefore can easily create habits because because it has that like emotional pull if you like rather than the logical um deciphering of what to do yeah and I think like social media is and work I suppose I'm kind of putting them in the two you know in the same bucket because I yeah and it's really interesting you mentioned exercise as well because I kind of feel like to the uninitiated um obviously the work you do I'm sure you you sort of see the deeper effects but it almost feels like there are addictions to harmful substances which we all know are harmful so be that alcohol cigarettes drugs but when we talk about addiction to exercise or addiction to work even it kind of feels like it might be like okay but that's not you know it's not as bad or it's not going to have the same effect on you and it's not a real addiction you know you know I'm just really busy or I'm just really you know whatever that is Mm. do you think that it doesn't necessarily matter what the substance is that addiction can be you know just as harmful regardless of what it is 100% 100% because that's the definition of, of addiction. You've got, to, you've got to sort of think about there's a real cultural aspect to the way that we talk about addiction as well. So I remember arguing in one of my lectures, you know, we were talking about addiction and I was saying, well, why is it like the Olympian cyclist who mm. might be absolutely like doesn't see his family or her family, you know, um, is killing their body through exercise, but is continuing to do it because they're going for that goal. That is seen as a real commitment to the cause, if you like. But someone that's waking up every day and cracking open a can of beer in order to get them through the day isn't seen in the same light. But they might have that same commitment, if you like. So it's just, I guess it's a different way of looking at it. But underneath um, kind of any definition of addiction, really, is going to be about something that you keep on doing, even though it causes harm to you and your relationships and your family. And when you try to stop, you can't stay stopped. So yes, people do talk about kind of, you know, if you like healthy addictions, but that's, that's a, you know, it's not oxymoron. Any addiction is not healthy. It will be causing harm in some way. And, and it also, there will be underlying drivers as to why somebody is, you know, is using that substance or that behavior in that compulsive manner 
um, you know, that there were underlying reasons. Yeah, can we talk a bit about that? Because I find that fascinating about, and, and I know that when we spoke previously, we talked around the um, the concept of addictive personality. And it's just this sort of label that gets thrown around of kind of like, oh, well, I've got an addictive personality. So that's how it is, you know, and, and, and many people will use that term. Mm. It's, it's, it's actually a lot deeper than that, isn't it, about why we have addiction. We're not just born with an addictive personality and that's, you know, um, a self-fulfilling prophecy of, of that of we're going to become ad- addicted to something. No, absolutely not. I mean, you know, if you look at studies around addiction, you will find studies around, you know, this idea of an addictive personality. And that's really rooted in something called the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, which was has been created over the last 70 or so years, um, which is about sort of identifying different he- mental health, like they call them like disorders. I just want to say like until 1973, homosexuality was in there. So it's not mm. necessarily a reliable source. And again, it's sort of reliant on culture and things. But in 1952, you know, they talked about addictive personality in the DSM. But then what happened with the Vietnam War is 20% of veterans came home addicted to heroin. So, yeah. So then that sort of was like, well, okay, if people are becoming addicted there, then how can we relate that back to personality? And the reason that I don't sign up to the idea of an addictive personality, and you think of, you know, personality is a way of looking at a collection of behaviours and labelling it as something. Mm. The reason that I don't like that is because it doesn't give people an exit. It doesn't give people this idea of an opportunity of being in recovery from something. It's like, Mm. well, you know, where, where do I go with that? The way that I look at addiction is there's normally you know, a few things going on, there will be attachment issues. So the way in which somebody has been parented. Now, people can sort of shy away from that because they don't want to blame parents or, you know, or don't want to be sort of that sense of betrayal to anyone. But really what we're talking about there is something that Dan Siegel, who does a lot around neuroscience and um, and attachment and and all sorts of great stuff, um, you know, he says for any kid to feel secure, So for there to be a secure attachment, they have to feel safe, seen and soothed. So safe is obviously physically they feel safe. So their nervous system is is well regulated because um, their needs are met. Um, Seen is emotionally, that emotional attunement. And soothed is that not only is that sort of like, oh, yeah, I can see that you're upset and that's mirrored to them. But there is a reliable source where they can go to for comfort and to feel comforted. So um, what that so it also brings in this idea of attachment, because when a child doesn't have that secure type of, of upbringing, they have this like sense of either the world isn't safe for me to go and ask for help or I'm not worthy of receiving that help. Right. So then behaviours and substances become like that secure attachment. So rather than the secure attachment to the caregiver, it can be a secure attachment to, to you know, the substance, if you like, or the behaviour. Right. I, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating how at an early age, like these these things can happen. I guess they're trauma, you know, of, of, some, yeah. of some level and that can manifest as we get older into these addictions. Absolutely. Talk- like I wouldn't, so, sorry, I was just going to no, say, no. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, I have not met one person with addiction that doesn't have a history of trauma. Mm. Um, and, you know, and actually nowadays, I mean, we're, we're sort of coming to the realisation that actually we've all gone through trauma. Everyone's got trauma. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. totally. <laughs> and do you know, is that availability that you talked about? Is that so what if someone, some, two people go through similar trauma and they've got these similar attachment issues? 
why might some one person become addicted to alcohol and another person might become addicted to sex for example you know do our addictions kind of do they come from the trauma or is it more about the accessibility what we've gained access to and what's made us feel better yeah I mean I'm not sure anyone has the answer to that question I think there's a whole mixture of things so certainly there does seem to be a genetic predisposition to alcoholism so if you have parents or grandparents that are alcoholic you have a genetic predisposition. That doesn't mean that will definitely sort of show up in you. Mm. So then you get to the idea of epigenetics. So the genetics is, okay, well, it gets passed down, but epigenetics is, well, does it present itself? So mm. epigenetics kind of are triggered by environment, you know, kind of what's the situation that somebody is in. So why would someone go for alcohol over sex? It, it, it can also be kind of what the need is mm. underneath. So there is um, a hypothesis that people self-medicate in different ways. So people go for alcohol um, when they feel quite depressed. They go for cocaine when they're trying to kind of um, sort of um, bump up the way that they're feeling. So they're sort of using different drugs in different ways. Um, but, you know, I think the jury's still out as to why mm. someone has one addiction over another, really. But what you do often find is that there'll be co-addiction. So there'll be, you know, if you're addicted to um, sex, for example, you might also have a cocaine addiction. Like quite often there can be sort of parallels in in different addictions. Wow. Let's <laughs> let's talk about workaholism and addiction to work. Yeah. Which obviously I think is a really big topic at the moment. I think the pandemic has just shifted everyone's relationship to work. And I think especially for entrepreneurs, I think you know, it can be a real slippery slope where you're suddenly like, oh my God, I am working all the hours God sends. I am saying no to social things. Exactly the kind of behaviours you spoke about when you're like, these yeah. are the damaging signs of addiction. Yeah. How does workaholism start? You know, those early kind of experiences. Um, is it something that happens in childhood that we then can manifest as adults? Yeah, I think there can be a few things with workaholism. I think often there can be a real loneliness um that someone has experienced and that doesn't necessarily have to be like a physical loneliness it can be like if you like a spiritual loneliness or a, a you know a, a sense of um of, of being alone and not quite knowing how to get those needs met um of sort of nurture and and you know feeling seen again if you like um and then it can be it can be environmental so if you're raised in a family where there is a lot of emphasis put on academic prowess you know if you're praised for getting 10 out of 10 which and, and these things can be really subtle and really simple and again it's that idea of for some people that will switch on and for others it won't necessarily you know mm. it is a, it is a mixture so but yes i mean most addictions um well, I mean, not always, of course, but often when I'm working with clients, really things are picked up between the ages of 10 and 14. That's when that's when things will have, you know, will start. That's not to say that people don't, you know, don't pick up things, uh, you know, later on. That definitely happens. But quite often it is within the teenage years. But again, I think that we we have this sort of, as I said at the start, this sort of negative, 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 um, um, 
kind of view on harmful substances and likewise you know trauma you know if someone was struggling with trauma from an early age you know that was maybe emotional abuse or physical abuse or something like that that you would really be able to identify like that's an issue but I feel like as children being you know the workaholic version of a child is like well they're a high achiever they're this you know these sorts of words and then as we get older it's like they're hustling, you know, it's this hustle mentality. Oh my God, they're killing it. Look how successful they are. They're a multi-hyphenate. They're everywhere at the moment, you know, and I feel like we just have just a really different view on what workaholism is and no one's going, actually, this isn't healthy. Yeah, well, actually, when you were talking, that sort of brings to mind this idea, like within a dysfunctional family, different children take on different roles. Mm. So the scapegoat, so someone's the scapegoat, like they're the one that's always blamed, they can never do any right. They would be you know, they're likely to be sort of more your substance, you know, type. That's, right. you know, likely to go towards that. Um, whereas there's also like a lost child, which is where they're just sort of reading books and kind of withdraw into themselves. Um, and then there's also the hero child. So the hero mm. child is really seen as the one that's like, look, our family is like functioning on all, you know, firing on all cylinders. Yeah. We're great. Look at this kid. They're such a high achiever. And they're probably the ones that are more likely to go sort of for the, you know, for workaholism. That might be where they, yeah, yeah it gets shown. It's really interesting. And I think like we said, is that even the word, the hero child, it's all kind of like positive reinforcement of yeah. achieving, getting 10 out of 10 on your test, you know, getting great grades, getting into the right university, you know, whatever it is, it's all kind of, positive reinforcement that actually we I don't know well maybe it's changed but I feel like definitely past generations we weren't really talking to kids about balance and you know um not being too hard on yourself like I was I was definitely raised in a highly critical um family in terms of schoolwork where I was Mm. naturally intelligent so then I would come and have like the best you know grade in the class but my mum would look at my work and my mum's amazing but she would just be like oh there's meant to be apostrophe there you know it would always be a thing and you internalize that so now I'm really hard on myself you know and and it's parent I mean I feel bad parents you know they're not trying to do that to their kids at all no and I think no and I think that's the key and I think that's the key thing and I think this can be a key hurdle in recovery for people Mm. because they can feel like they're being disloyal to their parents by saying that was harmful and it's okay to say actually that for me didn't work it might have worked for a sibling but for me and my whole makeup that didn't work and I have to work through the the hurt and the harm that that has caused me Mm. that's not sort of blaming the parent and saying that they're that they're at fault necessarily this is about okay you know these things have been harmful to me and I have to take ownership of that in some way now so how am I going to approach things so that I will allow myself to make mistakes so you know so that I won't push myself so hard how do, how do I move from being driven to being motivated and for any workaholic I think that is the the balance really. What, what is the difference between being driven and, and motivated can you talk just a bit about that? Yeah really I think I think being driven you know you're going to be looking sort of at like all or nothing thinking Mm. it's it's like there's not there's not a celebration of successes it's like yes but (laughs) yeah yeah I did that but I need to be you know or on in comparison that's where you're gonna that's sort of driven type stuff Mm. motivation is much more about this idea of flow and it's about um it coming from a lightness of wanting to do something because it feels like it's a creative expression in some way. Mm. And it's and it's not, 
your identity, if you like, isn't tied up in that. So you would feel comfortable walking into a room and introducing yourself as Connie and not even sharing what you do. Mm. Whereas some, whereas drive would be about, oh, you know, or they've got this or they've got that and I need to be shown what I'm, you know, what I'm doing. Right, right. That's really, it's interesting. And then I was sort of thinking, in a weird way, it feels like, and I don't know if this is the same for you, and I know a lot of people that listen to this podcast are, you know, have maybe gone from a corporate role where I think there can be a lot of, driven stuff where you're kind of like yeah. I'm going for the next promotion I want the next paycheck you know um there's a status you're kind of competing and then some and then you get to a point where you suddenly have that realization that you're just like why am I doing all of this like this isn't actually mm. making me happy you know this is mm. you know I'm being driven not motivated so then we might make a you know a right turn and go I'm going to go with what makes me happy what lights me up you know the lightness that you talk about but then mm. what happens when your passion becomes your full-time job and you're an entrepreneur? So then you are being driven by motivation, but you're then, you know, there's so many things on the internet of like, I quit my nine to five and now I work 24 hours. And I think that's really common with entrepreneurs. So how can we balance, you know, following our passion, being so motivated by our work because we love it so much, but still going, I- I'm working too much, you know, how, how yeah. can we kind of... Uh, deal with that well look I mean I think I think there's a few things I think one big one probably is is finding the right community actually is finding the right tribe of fellow entrepreneurs that aren't comparative that aren't like yeah I've done this and it's about the win but probably a space where actually people are talking about their failures and their struggles and and you know and the mistakes that they've made because that offers up a vulnerability uh, um, of a space where I am more than just the stuff that I am doing. Yeah. So there's that, and but but then it's really sort of practical stuff, right? So it's in in some you know if you're talking about alcoholism, one of the things that can often happen is people do it. It's called doing a geographical. Right. So it's like you know they're living in one place, everything is going wrong, and they say, "I know what we need to do. We need to move. We need to move country. We need to move town. We need to move you know we need to move jobs or whatever." So that's known as doing a geographical. So for people who have that drive, going and being an entrepreneur is like doing a geographical. There's nothing There's nothing different. They are, you know, it's like this is saying wherever I go, there I am, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't matter whether I'm working in a corporate role or whether I'm working in an, as an entrepreneur, I'm still bringing what I'm bringing to that. Mm-hmm. So being, so having that awareness of, oh, actually, you know, I'm comparing, I'm ratcheting myself up to, to you know, I need to be telling myself I need to be doing more, you know, that, that success wasn't enough is having that awareness, which you can do, you know, through journaling, through Mm. meditation, through taking some time out, is really, really important. And then there's, you know, simple things that you can do. So in addiction recovery, we talk about top lines and bottom lines. So bottom line behaviours are behaviours that you say, when I'm doing this, I know that I'm in my drive. I know that I'm in my addiction type thing. So that will be different for every person. Um, but it might be, for example, that you always say yes to stuff mm. or you reply to emails as soon as you get them or, you know, just like simple little things like that. So you can identify those key things of actually where is it that I can give space to myself so that I'm not in that constant drive all the time. Yeah. And then the top line behaviours are things like um you know, so I would talk about having a pie. So work is one piece of that pie, but so is rest, recreation, um, relationships, mm. exercise. So what am I going to 
do to make sure that I have all of these other things in my life. Now, workaholics might get really hooked on that and go, oh my God, there's only seven hours in my working day and I've got to fit all these things. So, so what you do then is you take like a week view and go, okay, in this week, these are the things that I want to do to take care of myself. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think like it, it, when you said about the, doing the geographical, it feels like sometimes it's not about the work that you're doing and it is about you need to look a little bit deeper about what what kind of is going on emotionally you know we talked a little bit about school and parenting but can can other th- relationships in our lives kind of affect um you know our approach to work I, you know I know I said to you before I have this thing where I struggled with the relationships at school sometimes and now I find myself a, I'm a bit of a people pleaser because I just want everyone to like me and I'm worried that everyone's not going to like me mm. so I will say yes to everything I will you know push myself I will always try and deliver and I feel like our work is like a massive relationship and our relationship with clients are hugely impactful relationships in our in our life you know um how how do we go about sort of healing those relationships that or those emotions that can lead to addictive behavior well I think it is it is about looking back Mm. um and what we do do is we replicate familial relationships onwards right so it it does come sort of from that family of origin and looking at, at what was going on there so and a one thing that I do with clients is I will do a timeline. So from the age of zero, we'll do all the things that were like, you know, positive in their life and also all the things that were negative. And this can be key messages. And the difficulty is for some people is that they, for most people, is that we don't know any different to what we grew up in. Okay. So when someone has been sort of, you know, shaming to us, which can be sort of exposing our inadequacies, Okay, so for example, the apostrophe thing, right, that 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 would have been a shameful experience for you. Um, When the other person doesn't take ownership and say, oh, you know, I'm sorry, I'm really nitpicky, like you've done a great job. That's my stuff. Don't worry about it. That shame, we hold on to that shame that becomes ours. And those um, shameful experiences, we try to figure out, we try to resolve through other relationships. So that that inner wound of I'm not good enough, which might have been the wound that sort of gets picked up from that. Subconsciously, we go, well, in this relationship, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to be, you know, and that's where, say, like people pleasing would kind of come in. So, yeah, it it is about going back. That's what I mean. I think like I'd be interested if people who are listening to have a think about the, you know, workaholism is one thing, but I think it can and I think our work and life are blended more than ever before. And I think those, mm. those that your approach to work can often be a similar approach that you have to life. You know, yeah. you know, you want to be the best uh, entrepreneur or the best whatever you are. But then you might also be like, and I want to be the best partner. I want to be the best mother. You know, I've got to. It's about not giving <laughs> yourself a break and just saying, I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to get everything done right on time necessarily. You know, I think, do you feel like we it's possible that we just really struggled to to yeah just give ourselves a break sometimes yeah like the perfectionism is is an armor to the fact that we're all really like messy humans and we all Mm. mess up all the flipping time and it's not I mean like you know I'm a mum of three kids I've studied this stuff I mess up as a mum oh my god so often 
And all I can do is loop back and go, that didn't work, did it? I'm sorry, like, how, you know, how was that for you? And sometimes even asking them, how was that for you, really pees them off because yes. it's too much. Do you know what I mean? So, and it's different for the, for the three of them. Mm. And um, yeah, there's um, a book by um, Dr. Brad Reedy called The Audacity to Be, I think it's like The Audacity to Be a Horrible Rotten Self, which he talks a lot about that, about the sort of the, the reclaiming, if you like, of our messiness, because going back to those shame experiences, mm. right, is when that happens and we feel exposed, we exile that part of ourselves off. We hide it. So we might, so, you know, I might hide all the times I felt like I disappointed people into my perfectionism, you know, that mm. that's, and actually, if I just let myself off the hook, Mm. and not act out in that perfectionism because that's a defense behavior just like addictive stuff right then all of these feelings of i'm not worth it i don't matter are going to come up but then we can heal those by mm. feeling them and 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 having self compassion and not judging them and just going yeah that you know that was hard but i don't have to stay in that belief anymore yeah i think self compassion is just so key i think yeah know, it's I, I always think you know the things the inner critic that you have in your mind when you're you know trying to get a project done or you're looking back on your work and you, you would never speak to a friend like that you know you, you would you wouldn't say those things but we we feel like we're it's okay just to be really unkind to ourselves sometimes and then that can then I think it's I think it's so, sorry to interrupt on it, I think it's so subconscious. Mm. I don't actually even think we're aware. And I think that's why, that comes back to the idea of journaling. But and for me, I, like, I'm not a great journaler, but I write poems, right? Yeah. So I've got a poem called I'm in the ring with me again and beaten mm. up real good. And it's exactly that. It's exactly about this idea of the inner critic. And I'm just really fed up one day. It's like whatever I do is wrong, like is not good enough. Yeah. So for me, you know, writing a poem and making kind of fun about that was was is my act of sort of self-compassion. Yeah. Um, and talking about it is so key. And I think this comes back to the community element that I was saying, because yeah. if we if we in a group of entrepreneurs that go, you know, I'm really struggling with this. And, and what we hear is me too, rather than, oh, no, you're not. Because <laughs> yeah. that's important. We we need that. Yeah, I get it rather than let me help you to fix it. Yeah. That that can be really helpful. Yeah, it's the being seen thing that you mentioned earlier. You know, we just need yeah. to be seen and heard and, and recognise ourselves and others. I mean, with workaholism, again, coming back to the kind of workaholism versus substance abuse, say, you know, substance abuse is really obvious physical and mental um, side effects, I suppose. What are the dangers of workaholism? Um, you know, I know burnout is, is such a, thrown around phrase here but what does that really mean and how could it impact you know everything from our relationships to our productivity and the 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 work that we're putting out oh my god I mean there's just I mean there's there's well there's so many ways right like I mean yeah you talk about burnout but but I mean it can be if it, it, it physically shows up so you know stress is the biggest killer and how much of that is driven sort of from this this workaholism really yeah. you know so high blood pressure heart attacks and unfortunately they, they take years to kind of creep up on us but it can be also smaller things it can be things like procrastination it can be living in a cluttered environment it can be not making your dental appointment it mm. can be having a messy car running out of petrol getting a speeding fine getting a parking ticket 
all of that relate that bad relationship that people have with time of being under pressure and I must do more and I must squeeze it in they would all be sort of signs and 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 that does start to sort of break down things so it breaks down relationships where people miss birthdays or they miss flights or they miss you know it's significant events that affect your relationships and of course like you were saying before because it's sort of you know this um idea that it's to be rewarded or I mean you know he's working so hard that she's working so hard that she's missed blah 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 no like she's missed blah 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 (laughs) like like that that's the important bit you know and and yeah it's kind of a bit of a cliched phrase but we are human beings and not human doings and we need to remember that it's so funny as you were talking I suddenly had a bit of a flashback that I was like oh god that was real addict behavior that my mum had commented that I had gone home for a weekend and I brought my laptop and I was like I've just got to do this thing you know I've just got to do this I hadn't finished something and I was like I can't switch off until I've got it done which is the beauty of working remotely that you can do those things but it also means you don't have your cut off <laughs> point right and I remember yeah. she made a comment about it and I like swiveled round kind of exorcist style and was like well this is what you wanted like you wanted me to be successful and I'm working really hard and was so defensive of my workaholism and that's what it was yeah and yeah like as you're talking I'm like oh my god that was that relationship breakdown is I wasn't spending quality time with my family because I was on my laptop on my phone and when someone called it out to me I you know it was like Gollum and the ring style like no like no one can talk to me about this so no one can call me out on it and I'm like gosh you know if you replace my laptop with a bottle of vodka it everyone would be going oh my god this is a problem yeah and um, you know what you were saying before about people pleasing it kind of I mean that's one of the things about sort of codependency which is this idea of as long as everyone else is okay I lose my sense of self in making sure that everyone else is, is kind of okay yeah. and that's a way of us controlling our feelings that we have about about being out of control and being mm. you know and being ourselves um and and that's what you often find in you know, with addiction is this sort of element of codependency is often lying underneath, which is I find it really difficult to be true to myself and to be my authentic self. Mm. And in the work that I do with when I'm working with people with addiction is that layer of addiction has has medicated stuff so much that when we take that away, the first stage might be I don't even know what I feel. I don't know what I want. I don't know who I am. And that can be really scary and it can be much more tempting to go back to the substance or behaviour than to sit with that discomfort. But that doesn't last forever. No, yeah, you've got to wean yourself off. I know that I wanted to ask about the pandemic, but as we're talking, I'm Mm. thinking, you know, the pandemic obviously blurred everyone's home and work life and we had nothing else to do and we didn't have a cutoff from it. And I think loads of people spiralled into workaholism. But as we're talking I'm thinking okay that was then you know now things are different but when you're a founder and you're working from home maybe I feel like our work and life are always so blended that it's so easy to slip into these harmful habits yeah it totally is yeah have you did you did you see that with with the pandemic and do you think that I guess even pandemic aside just working from home for example can be a really tricky kind of danger zone where you can slip into harmful habits yeah definitely and it comes back to what I was saying you know before about bottom and top line behaviors I mean you you know this is 
And this is part of the problem of getting into recovery from addiction is people will bargain. Mm. <laughs> it's not that bad. It's not that harmful. But there's, um, I mean, there's certainly this sort of curve for, for alcoholism called the Jelinek curve where it, it shows the path of progression. So exactly, the pandemic has accelerated that path of, of progression for people because the boundaries, and, and, and that is a real difficulty of people with addiction. It, you know, boundaries are a real difficulty um of, of mm. setting them for ourselves and setting them for other people and when I talk about boundaries it's about when I set a boundary with someone I'm teaching them how I want to be treated okay when I set a boundary with myself I'm reassuring myself of how I want to treat treat myself so I've just lost my earphone um key is keeping check of that as I'm going through things because otherwise it is like an insidious um sort of increment of stuff you know yeah, I think boundaries is so important. You know, saying no is an act of self-care. And I think that everyone needs to kind totally. of recognise that because I think it's it's so important. And an act of compassion. Mm. Brené Brown talks about this, about this, you know, compassionate people set boundaries. Because if you don't set a boundary, you create resentment. Mm. Yes. So then, you know, you overextend yourself and now you're resentful towards that client or to your partner or whoever because you didn't set that boundary. I'm really glad that you mentioned partner or work there because I think, again, not to generalise, but I think m- most women I speak to feel like they are trying to balance life admin with work. And then I just think you can end up, you know, reaching fever pitch of burnout because you're, you've got no area of your life where you're making time to put yourself first or say no. Yeah, I think we have to be really clear. I think there's such an um, sort of amorphous idea of what it is we're trying to do and why we're trying to do it. Mm. And I've really, like, I kind of have really noticed this, I think, as I've sort of changed in what I'm doing. Because a lot of what I do, actually, you know, I put out poems, I, um, you know, did performance and stuff. That's not a capitalist you know successful outcome necessarily um and it is work but it is coming but it is coming from a place of of motivation Mm -hmm. and I think we do have to ask ourselves well what you know what does success look like and when will I know where to stop yeah now I found it really hard to celebrate stuff and to actually stop and appreciate what I had managed to achieve so I created my own celebration station love which I've got just so anytime I get a thank you letter from somebody about a workshop I've done or or you know a therapy that we've done together I put it on there and it's just really nice as a reminder of this isn't about achievement or success or money this is a it's about relationships for me personally I think you're so right I think it's so easy for us to lose sight of our achievements and just focus on what we've not got and I think that's what can become I guess like you said falling into that driving mentality where you know I I wrote at the start of the year about I don't know 20 things I wanted to achieve this year and all that I think about most of the time where I'm sort of you know in my own head thinking about my business I'm like well you haven't done that and you haven't done that and you haven't done that yet and then I actually sat down at you know at various points within the year and I look I'm like yeah but I have done like these massive things and and I think we just really struggle to focus on our the positives and we can just like you said that self-critic kind of really harden ourselves and then that goes well I'll drive yes and I also feel like is there a bit of almost 
I am not productive when I'm working myself to the bone. That's just a fact. You know, my yeah. I am I'm not doing my best work at 7 a.m. when I've got right on the computer, still in my pajamas going like, well, I've got to send this email. Or I've got to get this article written or whatever it is. But there's this mm. thing of like, but look at you trying, you know, but you're up and you're sacrificing things and you're not putting yourself first. And that's going to somehow make me feel like I'm doing a good job, even though the output isn't great. And do you know what I mean? It's like, I feel like there's this psychology. Yeah, but the point is, is that it's never going to feel great because it's an internal job. Mm. So it goes back to the, you know, it goes back to those wounds. It's like, well, you know, it doesn't matter what I'm doing or what time for how long. It's never going to feed the beast. Unless you deal with <laughs> to, it. You know, yeah. to satiate it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Do you, do you think, you know, if people want to recover from workaholism, what are mm. those, what are their steps? And, and, and are they the same steps as any addiction that we need to follow? You know, do we have to recognise that we've got a problem? Do we have to kind of face it? Yeah, yeah. So there is, a, I mean, there's a 12-step group called mm-hmm. Workaholics Anonymous. There's also wow. Debtors Anonymous under Earners Anonymous. Like there's a whole area in this, um, in this sort of, you know, uh, field, if you like. Mm. Um, and I mean, look, I'm an advocate of 12-step programs. So, I, you know, I would say that would be, and it, that's a great place to start. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, <laughs> it's very straightforward. And, and what and do those steps helpful. look like and how do they manifest when we're looking at our relationship with work? Okay, so you start, you know, you'd start with step one, which is saying that you're powerless over workaholism. Mm. And then you kind of, the steps two and three are saying, okay, well, if I'm if I'm powerless over this drive, I kind of have to hand that drive over. So, you know, people talk about God, but it can, you know, or higher power, but actually it can be the 12 step group. It's like, I don't have the wisdom uh, to be able to stop this by myself. Mm. If I had, I'd have done it by now. Mm. So what I'm going to do is hand myself over to, you know, to to the steps, to working through the steps, to um, reading the literature around this, around other people's stories about workaholism, around what their experience is like. Then you start looking at, well, what has my workaholism cost me? So step four is about taking like an inventory of, all right, you know, to what level is it taking? You know, how many all-nighters have I pulled? How many birthdays have I missed? All that sort of stuff. And that's a very humbling exercise. And then what you do is you share that with somebody. That's step five. And then step six and seven is say, okay, well, underneath that, what, I mean, they call them defects of character, but basically it's like, what, what have I used to cope? Like, okay, so was my workaholism driven by people pleasing or by perfectionism or by, you know, my pride or you know, all, all of, or my fear? Like, so you look at, you start to pull it apart and say, okay, this is much bigger than the, than the outward manifestation of it. Um, and then, you know, you gain humility through doing that. And you also start sharing with people that have been affected, including yourself. Mm. First and foremost, yourself is to is making amends, which is step nine. So making amends is like, OK, well, what what behaviours do I want to have in the future? What do I need to apologise for and take responsibility for? Am I always late to that meeting? You know, am I always saying to that person they need to be working harder like how do I change those behaviors and then step 10 11 and 12 what called the maintenance steps so that's how do I bring that into my daily life and how can I share what I've learned with others which helps to keep me away from my workaholism because I'm not only practicing what I preach but I'm also preaching what I preach Mm -hmm. if you like yeah 
And then the simple things like the top and bottom line behaviors that I that I shared that you know people can do now and, and simple things like okay well I'm not going to take on an additional thing until I've until one thing off my list is done yeah. and I'm going to have a list every single day of you know five things that I'm going to do but I'm also going to include like when I'm going to exercise you know I'm going to make sure that I always eat at this time I take you know loose stops and things like that you know and I'm sort of thinking you know 12 steps might sound intimidating to some people and I'm just wondering is there I mean, I think it sounds great. I'm like, sign me up. I think it's really fantastic. <laughs> but I'm just wondering, you know, I, how do we know? What is the difference between I'm being busy and I'm a workaholic? How do we skip, you know, how do we kind of fall into that category? Or, or what are the things that we should be looking out for that we are like, okay, this is getting out of control? Okay, so if you're in a pretty constant adrenalized state, um, or you can like you know all the cortisols like coursing through your body you know if you've got the uh, sort of that that shakiness oh God, or yeah. the lightheadedness yeah. I just remember <laughs> yeah. oh yeah at the end of one working day I was like I need to do some yoga to calm down because I'd really and I literally sat and my whole body was vibrating and I was yeah. like oh my god like nothing is worth that yeah. like that's crazy no. yeah so um I think you know also um if there's a lot of multitasking going on, and like I said before about that squeezing of time, so just rushing, mm. just rushing all the all the time. Now, I, why I would say that's different to busy yeah. is that busy, you would you would step back and you would take a look at everything on your plate and you would say, okay, this is how I'm going to approach those things, and I know that I have you know this amount of capacity. So workaholism, you're not in touch with your body at all. Yeah. You don't, you know, you don't follow those signals of hunger. You don't follow the signals of going to the loo. Yeah. You don't follow the signals of being tired. You pick up a caffeinated drink instead. Okay. That's that's workaholic type behavior. Busy is, wow, a lot on my plate. What can I give to other people? What can I say no to? What can I say? I don't know if I can do that yet. Like yeah. that, you know, you you are much more able to manage that situation yeah I think it, it sort of it, it reminds me of mindfulness and just being mindful and being like okay I'm yeah. I'm like you said I'm connected to my body my mind and body are connected I know what's going on I can feel what I'm feeling and be like and identify okay this is what needs to be done rather than just running and like fight or float mode running around kind of not acknowledging and like you just said again I'm just sat here thinking oh god you know there are times that I'm like oh it's 3 p.m and I haven't eaten today and you're like, well, your wow. body's obviously yeah. like, I'm hungry. Can you feed me? But you're just ignoring all those signals because you're like, got to get this thing done. Yeah, but also what you get then is you've got, it's it's called a starvation high. You know, you yeah. get this high because you're not eating. So that kind of feeds into it as well. But I, I think what's really important to say as well is it's not easy. Okay. It's not, you know, for a lot of people, when they stop doing that stuff, the sense of unease that they feel within themselves can be really, really um, uncomfortable. Mm. And that's why, you know, something like the 12 step community is good is because it helps to normalize that feeling of discomfort. Oh, OK, actually, I've stopped doing this and I feel pretty rough, but most people in this situation feel pretty rough. Yeah. And it's keeping the eye on the prize as well. You know, the process of it's not always going to feel rough. I'm going to feel much more in connection with myself, with other people, if I continue on this path. Yeah, 
Definitely. I, I, before we get on to your top tips, I really wanted to talk, you know, you're the therapeutic poet, that's sort of your thing. And I know that for you personally, creativity has been a really important part of your kind of self-care routine, I suppose. Mm. Can you talk to me a little bit about, because again, I think self-care, we talk about that, again, it gets thrown around and it's sort of like, oh, I've got to have a bath or this, that, the other. It's not necessarily that, is it? I think creativity is a really, really interesting vehicle for self-care. Can you talk to me a little bit about your relationship with it and how it could help maybe other people that are recognising these workaholic traits within them? Yeah, I think what's really interesting is in the trauma field, people are talking more and more about creativity and the importance of it um, as it's sort of being something that's to help you sort of emotionally regulate. And if you think about shame or about um, any addiction, everything gets narrowed down. It becomes this kind of everything gets blinkered is this sort of black and white thinking. It's all or nothing. Um, there are no other options other than taking this creativity is kind of like the antithesis of that mm. it's playful it's opportunity it's it's doing it for the for the sake of the process not for the outcome um and it has taught me so much mm. so like so much and I think when I let go of like all of the oh well if I'm a poet then I need to be you know I need to be published in this I need mm. to be entering this competition I need to be blah, you know um and I um I mean, I always started off just doing it for myself. It was a, it was the way, the rhythm and the beat in poetry. And I know people go, oh, Jesus, poems. I was one of those. Like, I don't know how I've ended up doing poetry because I was always like, Ugh, poetry. But it's, a, it, it's one way that you can gain flow. Mm. And in positive psychology, people talk about flow. But this is any creative task. It can be knitting, you know, like Tom Daly at the, Olymp yeah, <laughs> the Olympics. Yeah. It can be... Anything that is that is rhythmical, that is taking you out of your head and bringing you into your body, um, is going to be is going to be helpful. And we we have this innately in us. We are all creative beings. If you look at children, you know, an imagination um, that they all have, like it's it's that we have unlearned that. And and in recovery and sort of reclaiming back our, our creativity is about um is about unveiling that again mm. saying that this is a really sacred part of all of us you know it's part of our essence is to create with you know we are nature and that's what nature does all the time oh I love that it's beautiful I think like I, I like vision boarding that's my like the, the right thing. yeah and do you know what for me as well it's just when you just do something without a screen it's amazing just the way you can feel your breath slow down when you're just yeah. doing something for no real reason and you're just kind of going with your instincts and using your hands like there is something so magical about it that it can just bring you from up here to like down here in a in, a, in the best way possible yeah. absolutely absolutely so we want to move on to your top tip. So I'll start actually with one that is relevant to just what we were talking about, which is what is your top tip for someone who wants to reconnect with their creativity? Um, to check out all of the rules. <laughs> I think it would be. Um, I, and I would go back to the senses and go back to thinking about what you enjoyed as a kid. Mm. Like, so I know for me as a kid, there's three things that I enjoyed. I enjoyed... Um, being out, I enjoyed, it sounds really sad, I enjoyed sitting in a hedge. <laughs> we, had to, we had this hedge 
that kind of had like it had like a little dome in it and it was this it was right ne- you know it was in amongst nature and greenery and and I just really I really enjoyed that so um definitely going back to things that you know that you remember that you enjoyed as a child um I think also um like I said around the senses I mean like you, you know you're obviously a visual person what you were saying with vision boarding think about you know for some people they're kinetic they want to move you know so, so think about well what is it that I naturally like doing yeah that's so interesting We've actually had a question from the audience. If you realise that your parents have been the cause of some childhood trauma, which you've taken into your adult life, is part of the recovery to deal with the issue head on, speaking to them, or is it more of a self-healing, introspective process? I think that is um, a really good question. And I think it depends on you and your relationship and and what it is that you're trying to gain from it. If you're trying to gain some uh, change in behaviour, it might just be worthwhile identifying the behaviours that you would like them to change and asking them, you know, what what they are willing to do about that. I mean, that kind of comes back to boundaries and teaching other people how you want to be treated. Um, My experience is that when people do um, sort of try and cover it with parents it doesn't go down well so I would say that it's much more um, better to do as an introspective um, practice in on the main but like but each time is you know is independent okay I think this is really relevant to a lot of the stuff we've been talking about what are your top tips for someone who wants to heal from trauma that could be impacting their work there's so many different ways to, to heal trauma. And I think it's a bit of a top-down and bottom-up approach. And what I mean by that is top-down is kind of actually like is is your story, is sharing what's happened to you and that being validated in some way. Now, going back to your parents for them to validate that, probably not going to happen. It's better doing that with a therapist or doing it in a group like the 12-step group. Also, we store trauma in our bodies. So it's important to do which is the bottom-up bit. And this is where some like physical activities like yoga might be helpful. But there's also specific trauma reduction um, treatments that you can do. Things like EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing, I think it is. And EFT, which is emotional freedom technique, or it's also known as tapping. Um, These are great techniques for helping you to release that trauma. So trauma is when it's sort of stored energy in your body that's not been able to release. So you know, something happened, you felt really mad, you weren't in a position where you could say that you felt really mad about that, and that energy gets stored somewhere. Things like EMDR, um, EFT, equine therapy, experiential um, therapy, psychodrama, they're all brilliant techniques for helping somebody um, deal with their trauma. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. So what are your top tips for someone who is reaching burnout stage and really wants to pull themselves back from the brink? the hardest thing to do is, is to recognize it and, and a few of the things to recognize like we've said before about not taking time for your basic like needs like animalistic needs of going to the loo and eating and stuff like that I think one of the signposts is when you um kind of become just really resentful of stuff or you just don't care anymore and you don't care that you don't care and you just like everything feels lackluster you don't have an enjoyment for life um 
when you reach that level and you've you've acknowledged it, then it comes back to what I've said before about, okay, when I look at everything, what is absolute, like what's a need and what's a want? What's an absolute need? They're not all going to be needs on there and what are absolute priorities? And the first and foremost need and priority is going to be you and, and taking care of yourself. Um, and then it's a case of, well, what can I say no to? What can I delegate? Um, and what can I sort of put off um, until later? Uh, and then any way that you can connect back with yourself, whether that's journaling, yoga, meditation, and doing that on a regular practice, it's, it's consistency, consistent, even if you just do it for a minute to start off with, and then two minutes the next day, three minutes the next day, it's making that start, and it's the consistency that's gonna help you to move away from that burnout. Jackie, thank you so much. That was such an incredible chat. I definitely learned a lot. Thanks very much. Thanks, Jackie. Goodbye. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Bossing It. Jackie didn't actually get to share where you can find her online. So her website is JackiePower.com and on Instagram, she is Jackie L. Power. You can find her there. You can find out all about her writing workshops, her podcasts and all the other incredible work that she does. We'll also put all of that in the show notes. If you have a couple of seconds before you go, if you could rate, review and subscribe wherever you're listening as it helps other people find the podcast. If you want to hang out with us online, you can find us on all socials with the handle at foundflourish. Please tweet us, DM us, get in touch however you'd like to let us know if you've got any questions about the issues we discussed in today's episode or anything in the series or if you'd like to nominate our next amazing guest. Thanks for listening and see you next week.